Hello, everybody. This is Saman Asghari. Welcome to Talk Iran, a podcast dedicated to discussing Iran-related issues. Before we start today, I wanted to ask something of people who are listening. In order for me to keep working on this podcast and for it to be sustainable, I would need it to reach a critical mass of listeners. So if you, in fact, find it to be interesting and productive and would like to see it grow and evolve, please share it on social media, blog about it, review it, or simply tell others about it. My goal is to keep things interesting and not just focus on current events. That is what I'm focusing on right now because there's a lot happening with Iran, as you know. But at some point, I would like to invite people with different backgrounds to discuss Iran and Iranians from cultural, historical, and other perspectives as well. So your support in sharing and talking about this project would be highly appreciated, and it would really help me along that path. All right, let's get on with today's episode. Today, I'm speaking with Eli Lake. Eli is a Bloomberg opinion columnist covering national security and foreign policy. He was the senior national security correspondent for the Daily Beast and covered national security and intelligence for the Washington Times, the New York Sun, and UPI. Iran is one of Eli's focus areas, and he's written many pieces on the country and on what's currently happening. He and I talk about the recent U.S. sanctions on Iran, the general role of the U.S. and other external forces in shaping Iran's future, how various historical events in other countries can serve as a model for changing Iran, the possibility of war, the various players opposing the regime, and other topics. Eli believes that the reform movement in Iran has failed, but that change still needs to come through a movement that is led by the Iranian people. He also believes that the West has a role to play in pressuring the regime in more targeted ways that don't greatly hurt the Iranian population, and that the possibility of war or an invasion is overplayed. All right, let's hear it from the man himself. So I give you Eli Lake. I'm here with Eli Lake. Eli, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So let's start with the sanctions. Uh, The first batch of the uh, U.S. sanctions against Iran went into effect this past week. Uh, These are sanctions that ban Iran from purchasing precious metals, uh, the U.S. dollar, automotive aircraft components. There's also a second round going into effect later in the year. Uh, My question is, what is the ultimate purpose of these sanctions as the administration sees it? Well, I mean, President Trump has said over and again that his goal is to squeeze the Iranian regime and get them to reconsider and renegotiate not just a nuclear deal, but like a, a, a kind of a, a new understanding with the Iranians to and, you know, regional aggression and a series of other things. Um, that is, I think, very different than a policy of regime change, um, even though uh, certainly I think there there would be some views that, you know, you just want to cause the Iranian economy so much uh, pressure that it collapses. But my view is that, uh, you know, and I've written this many times that you know, the best strategy for what I would, regime change is sort of a freighted word, but the best strategy for solidarity with uh, Iranians who are trying to take their country back is to target sanctions. So they, they are specifically against sort of leadership targets as opposed to uh, affecting the entire population. So could this strategy backfire in a sense, as in could it force the regime to come to the negotiating table, make some deals that ultimately allows them to stay in power indefinitely? And then they carry on doing what they do and and so on. I mean, I want to say something. I think the most important dynamic on this question of the popular uprising in Iran are the people who are organizing 
the strikes, the demonstrations versus the regime. And that is the, we should really focus on that. That's the, the, the main contest. Outside elements, and, you know, I should make it clear that, you know, I, I think that in some ways the Western, the West's interests are aligned with the Iranian people in this particular case. But there is, a, you know, you can't bank on that. You can't predict when there's going to be the moment, the tipping point. You don't know when that's going to be. Um, you know, there have been times in recent Iranian history, 2009 comes to mind, where we thought maybe that was it. And, you know, you, you, so you can't bet on that. So if you are the Saudis or the Israelis or the Emiratis or the U.S. perspective, you want to, and you say, this is a strategy that deprives you know, the Iranian Quds Force, the Revolutionary Guard Force, the resources they need to project power. But my point, sort of going back, is that, you know, imposing these kinds of wide sanctions or blunt instruments, that what you end up doing is, is you, you, you can end up kind of causing not only further misery for the people who are going to be our allies, uh, the Iranian, and, you know, Iranians who were kind of sick of their government, yeah. But you also, you know, we know the dynamic in Iran is that when there's a currency crunch as there is right now, it benefits people who are very good at selling dollars on the black market. And that's usually people who are connected to the Revolutionary Guard and the Basij and regime kind of connected figures. So, um, you know, so there is a kind of danger there. But that said, I don't think that there's much that we, we should really focus. This is an Iranian process. They've really lost so much legitimacy when you have people who are like former hardliners like Ahmadinejad as well as Khatami and others who are now openly kind of calling for pretty close to, you know, we need to have, you know, a pretty radical change. Uh, there, I just think that there's going to be, it's, it's going to be too hard in many ways to catch on, especially as more information comes out about all the money that has been stolen by the elites as regular Iranians have to, you know, sort of see their standard of living decline. It's going to be very hard to hang on. I think that, that's the, the key is that within the security institutions of the state and you start getting kind of mid-level people who thinking, you know what, maybe it's, maybe I should switch sides and go on the side of the work people organizing for a better future. That's the dynamic that has got to happen, but that is a, an Iranian dynamic. And I just think it's important to understand that there's very little that the U S or other outside powers are going to do to affect that. This is not like the 1953 where you had the CIA coming in, Taking, you know what I mean, and and, right. and fomenting a coup. That those those days are somewhat over. I think the kind of thing backfires. This is an internal dynamic, and as much as the regime will try to say these are people who are acting on behalf of foreign powers, you know, I don't think they have any credibility with most Iranians inside or outside of the country. They're going to, of course, say that they've been saying that for years. But we should cope because this is an Iranian process. I just wanted to make that point. No, that's that's a great point. But there's this argument, as you know. Uh, there are people that want that change to happen more um, more rapidly, as in sure. there should be some kind of a momentous movement or event that sort of transforms the entire government. I understand that it has to be an Iranian, um, Iranian-led movement. Uh, but then there are people that say, you know what, the, the kind of change that we want, we all want good things for Iranian people. We want them to have certain freedoms. That comes about through a very gradual process that will take maybe years, right? Maybe somebody that comes into power two, three years from now will lead some kind of a breakthrough, 
and then slowly but surely things will change and improve and maybe 10 years down the line i don't know i'm just making up you know numbers no, no, but... listen you may be right you're you're i i, I am not going to predict the the course that this is going to take the one thing i would say is that we have some experience there has always been something of a reform faction in the uh islamic republic going back to the revolution remember ayatollah montezari was for a lot of liberal reforms and for that he paid very dearly with house arrest until he died. Uh, everybody remembers Mohammed Khatami and the 1997 election and all of the promises that came along with that and what ended up happening. We saw the crackdown after 1999 with the demonstrations at Tehran University. And ultimately, he his presidency was so badly neutered by the permanent elements of the state that it kind of made a joke of the reform. Then we saw the efforts of the leaders of the green movement well what did they pay for their demonstrations after what they I think credibly said was a stolen election well they still remain under a kind of house arrest although we see some reports in the last week that that might be thankfully hopefully changing but um and all of these people who were around them the ex-reformers who were calling from Iraq, they're imprisoned you know so the the at one point the daughter of the late robson johnny who was you know roughed up in a prison and so forth then we see and we're told that oh no there's a new moderate his name is rohani he's coming to power look at javad zarif yeah. well remember rohani was on the side against khatami in the original kind of reform spasm of the late 1990s yeah and rohani is gonna he sent he knows the mood of the country he has to say i want you know more of these reforms he doesn't deliver on any of it he can't deliver on any of it. I don't think he ever was really sincere. I think he was always for the preservation of the regime. And, um, you know, that I think we saw many people in the West in the second term of Obama hoodwinked to think that, you know, the election of Rouhani was, you know, a, a, a signal of this kind of reform approach that you were talking about. Yeah. But of course it didn't happen. And the, the reason that there is a crisis right now is not because of the Iran deal. It's not because of America. It's not because of Trump. It's not any of that stuff. It's because they have failed to deliver on any of these promises and these demands that not just the Iranians living in the Tehran suburbs and, you know, who have the elites. This is what a lot of like we now know it's it's really a widespread movement. So right. they have to deal with that. So I don't know how it's going to I don't know how you do that and then reform the system, because we've there have been so many efforts to reform that system. And it is always spitted back out and become even tougher and more hardline and more corrupt. So, I mean, maybe, but and it's it is up to the Iranian people. But the, the, the argument that you see now, we need reform, not revolution or reform, not regime change. My response is that people have been trying reform for all these many years and it has failed. So that is why people are so frustrated. That's why Shireen Abadi is so frustrated. But Trump has to do, uh, has a little bit to do with what's happening right now, right? When when he became president, the threat yeah. of him pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal made the Europeans nervous. They pulled out. People stopped uh, investing in Iran. So that kind of doomed the deal, didn't it? Well, you know, I would argue that the part about the investment, like where's our promised investment? The Iranian, the, Iran, the regime shoots itself in its own foot on that, right? I mean, listen, when they are among just forget the human rights issue. We know that the Namazis are innocent. They shouldn't be in prison. Right. And that's the big case. But there are lots of these Westerners who work with businesses who are trying to invest in Iran, who then are, uh, you know, basically taken hostage for cockamamie reasons and are said that there's some sort of intelligence security threat. Um, and they're then used as negotiating pawns. And so if you are a business that alone is one reason why you might be wary of investing. The second is because 
there is this weird ambiguity in the way that the sanctions were lifted. The U.S. never said that it wouldn't be able to sanction Iran for its support for terrorism or human rights violations. And it also made it clear that you, you, you can't be investing with the Revolutionary Guard Corps. Well, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps has so many tentacles and so many elements of the Iranian economy, that was always going to be a problem. And then add to that, and this is really important, the behavior of the regime after they reached the deal in 2015 was to double down on a ghastly atrocity in Syria. That has its own implications. Their aggression in the region has its own implications. So if you are a multinational business and you're looking at that and the message from Saudi Arabia, which is also a pretty big market that you might be interested in, is you can't do any business with the Iranians because well, we won't do business with you, which is my understanding of what pretty much the Saudis are saying at this point. All of these things add to the to, to increase the risk, regardless of what Trump says about the Iran nuclear deal. Yeah. That I think all that's why you already saw the Riyadh was in sort of a free fall before he announced that he was even pulling out of the deal. There was already the devaluation of the currency. There were already there weren't people weren't investing in it. That again is the fault of the regime. It's because yes, there are there are Iranian officials, and I think Rouhani and Zarif are among them who do want this Western investment, and they do want that, but they still can't persuade the rest of the thugs that they're going to be able to do that in, in any way that would be sort of beneficial for the people who are doing this sort of Western investment. That was why my position was, let the deal sort of ride, because there wasn't going to be this gold rush in Iran, and that if there was a way to try to sort of not make that much of an issue and focus on the Iranian people, because I, I think that it's continues. That was that was what I wrote, like, sort of at the time before he made his decision. But now that he's out, um, yeah, I think, it, you know, but I, that is not, I don't think that, you can't really say that Trump is the cause of it, because I don't think, even if, even if it was President Hillary Clinton who would have kept the deal, I don't think you still would have seen a lot of the people investing, and I think there would still be all these problems and, and that were unresolved and everything like that, and she would maybe not be forced to get out of the deal, but there would still be, the Iranians would still not sort of see the investment that they want for all those other factors. Were you in favor of the Iran deal to begin with? No, I, I mean, it's, I thought that, um, I thought it was a weak deal. So I was against it in that respect. I was very critical of it. I thought it was far less than what originally Obama wanted. But I have been, you know, my view has always been that I want to see, and I'm increasingly of the view that it's not really so much a government policy. I'd like to see more Western civil society uh, in general, just kind of create the same kind of anti-apartheid movement that was successful in supporting Nelson Mandela in the 1970s and 1980s, but do it for Iranian freedom. You know, I mean, we, we, we have we now know, by the way, I mean, I that there is a proposal to have a referendum on the powers of the supreme leader and change the Iranian constitution. That would strike me as something that everybody kind of in Hollywood and the West should just get behind that. And yeah, but it, how how would that come about, right? Because the argument is you have the IRGC, you have 500,000 troops that are armed. They're not going to just lay down their arms. The The regime is not going to just bow their heads and say, okay, come in, have a referendum. There has to be a practical way to have that happen. But there's a, no, a very good point. But yeah. I would just say, you know, you can make the same argument. PUW Boto won't just end racial apartheid in South Africa, right? What ended up happening was there was a huge campaign to isolate culturally and economically the South African regime until they addressed this great inequity in their system. The same thing can be done in Iran. We have made the focus of our engagement with Iran its nuclear program. That is, of course, very important. I'm not saying it's not important. 
But what have we made the focus of our engagement with this ring? And again, this is something that can happen also from civil society. Um, what have we made the focus political prisoners and, you know, forcing them to address these kinds of things, as we have seen in these other kinds of movements? Now, that's really not been tried. But we, the one thing we do know is that there is a, is a sort of weird desire to have the, the, the dictatorship in Iran wants the, the, the supreme leader and wants his system to be recognized as a kind of equal nation, given a kind of legitimacy and respect from the outside. That's what every tyrant and dictator always wants. They don't want to be uh, reminded of, you know, kind of their illegitimacy at home. Well, why not tie that re- legitimacy to these very tangible things? It doesn't have to be the referendum movement for saying, I mean, you're, you're, you're correct, that they're not going to just agree one day that to change their mind. But there's all kinds of things that you can sort of ask for, like, you know, a release from prison, Misavi and Karubi, release from rather house arrest. There are all these sorts of things that you can demand that they do. Instead, what I've seen is that there is a push um, from the kind of liberal elites that, you know, we, we support more and more engagement, but why not condition that engagement on some outcomes from, you know, the regime that would be good for the Iranian people? And so, so that that's, would be, where, that's where the referendum thing comes in, because ultimately that can be one of the conditions that you sort of say, all right, well, if you want to get out of diplomatic and economic, you know, international, you know, sort of, you know, red notice status or whatever, then you need to address the following things and ultimately comply with what these other sort of civil society leaders have asked for. Yeah, but the referendum would be such a radical thing to, as compared to releasing I, political uh, prisoners. I, I agree that it's right. a radical thing, but... You know that that's that it's and but it's not that's not Eli Lake's agenda. You know that's that is what a lot of Iranians have called for. A good thing to sort of rally behind, and it's a good thing for like I I mean that's my main thing is I think that there's just an absence of a campaign in the West, Um, and it and I understand that Iranian American communities are going to have a lot of different disagreements. Yeah, and I respect that, but I'm just talking about like why can't like you know George Clooney or you know why can't just regular celebrities you know what i'm saying i mean it, it, it was extraordinary to me that in the aftermath and we i'm sure you followed this right in the aftermath of those protests where we know that you know they shut down that suburb of iran of tehran for a couple of days they wouldn't allow anybody in there were some people who were shot this this but, recent protest yeah this was like about a week and a half ago uh, Kadaj, right? right? Yeah. yeah yeah exactly and right. we know that there was like all this stuff happening and no mention at all from Federica Mogherini of the European Union. Instead, she she just does this you know new announcement that we're going to you know punish any European company that was going to do business that doesn't do business, and it's a total paper tiger threat. But what message does that send? Why can't you know there be? I mean, she is in a position where she can raise human rights um, because they're really the European Union foreign minister doesn't do much anyway. Um, she could be much better on that. I mean, I've been very critical of her, and instead. She's just been an advocate for what I would call cost-free investment, cost-free engagement. Just do that and don't demand anything from the Iranians on this regard. And I think it's just it's awful. Like you know, she should. We need but, a new. Yeah, but it's really tough to gauge the the extent of the protests, how big they are, and what people are actually looking for, isn't it? Well, I mean, you I'm you see to... you see images on social media and everything. It looks like hundreds of people, maybe thousands in some respects, but that pales in comparison to what happened in two thousand nine. I think that that's the wrong way to look at it. You're right. The two thousand nine protests in Tehran were much bigger, but they were also more centralized, and it was one community. The fact that these are throughout the country, the fact that they're continue, they're part of not just 
the size of the demonstrations. We have strikes that we know about from the truckers and various other groups, that there's a kind of constant drumbeat and campaign. And the fact that you now have the beginnings of a pretty wide swath of Iranian politicians, I mentioned Ahmadinejad before, who are beginning to sort of recognize all that, I think that that is more significant. You know, there were a lot of people in Tiananmen Square and the, you know, the, the, the PRC was still able to crush that because there were no other demonstrations in the rest of China. This time, there are demonstrations all over Iran. And the problems that are being protested, although they always end up with, you know, death to the dictator and, and everything like that, but what they're protesting is not going to go away. I mean, what does have you seen the, you know, regime's plan for drinking water in Isfahan? I haven't. Have, you know what I'm saying? What, they're not, they don't have any solutions. So these problems are going to get worse. And um, so I think it's, it's that I saw that analysis, I guess, on Twitter from someone. And I think that that is the wrong way to look at it. I think you have to really keep in mind that they've managed to keep it going. They've managed to come up with ways to foil the censorship on the Internet and things like that, to block things like that. They're using these VPNs. They've figured out how to keep it, make it a kind of national problem for them. Uh, the main concern, uh, at least the way I see it, is that if the country is destabilized and the protests continue and there's more pressure from the West uh, in the form of sanctions and other activities, that if the regime collapses, there's an environment where bad actors sort of can take advantage. And who's to say whoever comes to power is going to be friendly to the U.S.? Is that a concern that you share? Well, no. I mean, I think the regime is pretty terrible, so... Uh, I take my chances on, you know, what, what happens. But also, if it, if it happens as a result of nonviolent protests, then I think usually those are things that have, have pretty good odds. But I would just ask you, you know, we've seen this before. It's not like this is the first time this has happened. And everybody sort of mentions, what about Iraq? What about Libya? Well, this is nobody's calling for an armed invasion of Iran. Nobody's calling for a coalitional provisional authority in Iran. This is just, uh, you know, it's 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 a this is an evasion to bring that up. That that is not what's the dynamic. The dynamic. Why shouldn't the Iranian people have the same, um, you know, kind of experience of of getting rid of their dictatorship that the Serbs had uh, with Slobodan Milosevic in 2000? Or you can just go through. There's a lot of examples of this. There, we, these are velvet revolutions, and we really shouldn't fear them, particularly when they happen in countries like Iran that are run by people who, you know, terrorize their neighbors and their own population and are avowed enemies of the United States and our allies. I mean, like, this is like, yeah, it's there is going to be chaos in a situation like that. But the situation right now is so bad that, I mean, I would just say I'm on the side of the Iranian people who want uh, something better. But in 79, people thought that things couldn't get worse. And it, it did, right? Well, I mean, well, okay, first of all, Yes, you could argue things did get worse, but you know, in 1979 there was it was a large kind of democratic coalition. Maybe the the, the story of 79 though is not that we should never ever have revolutions. I mean, first of all, revolutions are going to be inevitable, and I think you know I'm not Iranian, but you're Iranian. I mean, this is part of the kind of Iranian. I mean, there revolutions are a big part of Iranian history. The idea that you're never going to have anything like that is, I think, to just sort of is it, it will happen, I think. But more importantly, the lesson of 79 is that when you have fundamentalist Islamist leaders like 
Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini tell you that, no, 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 he's really just a Democrat and respects, you know, the communists and the socialists and all the other people who were against the Shah. Don't believe them. In fact, those people are very similar to the communists uh, in the, you know, aftermath of the uh, World War II when they would be running in elections in Eastern Europe. They managed to muscle their muscle out the more liberal uh, parties. So the, the the lesson there is that like be very wary of you know um, Islamic fundamentalists who claim to be Democrats. Just so you should be very wary of communists who claim to be Democrats. Um, it's, the the issue is I mean that, that doesn't change the dynamic that like you know the tyranny of Shah Reza Pahlavi was you know a cor- corrupt and that Iranians didn't like it and they deserve something better. What it, what I think it shows is that you know, Islamic fundamentalist, you know, supreme leader did not provide something better. Yeah. So uh, I want to go down a list of possible outcomes, and I okay. want to hear how likely you think each one of those possible outcomes are. Uh, the first one is uh, somebody from the regime having a meeting with Trump at some summit and ultimately renegotiating the deal. Well, the last part I don't think is likely, but I think I could I could totally see a meeting. Trump likes meetings. Uh, you know, it's funny, Rouhani wouldn't meet with Obama. I don't know if he would necessarily meet with Trump. I don't want to get into that. I mean, who knows? I mean, one could see that things are really bad. Things are so dangerous for Rouhani right now politically and so perilous that this would be the kind of long shot, dramatic, bold step that he might think could give him renewed relevancy or in some ways save his presidency. But I, I, I don't want to I think it's dangerous to sort of speculate. I think probably not, but I don't think that you're going to really see much of a renegotiation of the deal um, at this point. But who knows? I mean, listen, we would have said a year ago, there's no way that Trump would sit down with Kim Jong-un and look what happened, right? (laughs) Right, right. What are your thoughts on Reza Pahlavi in general? So the argument is that he is irrelevant and disconnected, that he's too connected to the Pahlavi uh, dynasty in the past and, and... how popular do you think he is in Iran? How, how much do you think his message is resonating with people inside Iran? And does he have a chance of coming to power, given his activities and the fact that he's calling for a referendum? Well, um, a couple points. I mean, we do see the videos, I'm sure you've seen them, of people calling for Reza Shah. And we, when they discovered the body of his grandfather, it was a big deal. Um, so there, I think that when you see those sort of moments where they're, they, you see people in crowds chanting for him, that is a more of a kind of, you know, a rejection of the current regime than it is necessarily like really wanting to bring back um, the Pahlavi dynasty. I think Reza Shah, the, the, the grandson of the first Shah or the, you know, the Reza Pahlavi himself, you know, has said over and again that he has no interest in reclaiming the throne in that respect. He said maybe if the Iranian people supported the idea of a constitutional monarchy, which would require the consent of the people, then he would consider it. But he has not called for the restoration of his dynasty. And I've covered enough of these kinds of movements where you have an exiled former king or prince that um, when they want to bring back the monarchy, they they say it. You know, So that is important distinction that he says. And I think that some of what he's said, you know, this is somebody who has really educated himself on, um, you know, how these nonviolent um, democratic resistance movements, you know, happen. And he's, you know, he's worked with the late Gene Sharp, who's been very good on this, and 
many others because there's a lot to learn on this. And I think that he has a lot to offer in that respect, and especially in the Iranian uh, diaspora, where he, if he can be a figure that, you know, talented Iranians who maybe could help solve a lot of the, you know, hard problems like the water crisis and everything like that, which is what he's talked about. If he can do that, then that would be a very good thing for the Iranian people. And as again, he keeps saying he doesn't want to restore the monarchy. Um, in the end, I don't think you can restore the monarchy. I think, you know, it's just not going to work in 2018. The Iranian people are connected to the Internet. It's just not I don't think it's necessarily going to be a viable approach. But again, that's not up for that's not up, up to me. And I think that I mean, it's again, I'm not trying to, to come up with a strategy for the democratic resistance. But as a general rule, you want to try to have it as broad a coalition. And I think would you not agree there are a lot of Iranians who really like him, even if not all Iranians do. So if he is somebody who some Iranians and, you know, insider and outside the country really support and think is worthwhile, then, you know, as long as he is respecting a democratic process, why not have a coalition that includes him? And I understand how bad his father's regime was and how corrupt it was. But he, since he has sort of renounced any kind of claim to trying to restore that, I, I would just say, why not take the view that, you know, you, you want as many people on the same goal and the same page as possible um, in that respect? Yeah, I have a hard time gauging how much people actually like yeah. him because I've heard it from both sides. Right. There are yeah. people who are very fervently opposed to him and then there are people that like his ideas. Um, so it's hard for me to gauge. What are your thoughts on the MEK? Do they have a chance at all to do anything? I'm not a big fan of the MEK. Um, mm. I think they're a cult. Listen, they sided with Saddam Hussein in the Iran-Iraq war. Um, they're, they, they claim to be the only uh, democratic opposition, which is not true. If there was a way for them, again, to respect a process that had lots of different voices and lots of groups on the outside, then as I said, I'm generally of the view that you should have as wide a coalition opposing the regime as possible. But there have been efforts in the past to try to include them or to have, you know, you know, in a kind of, you know, coalition opposing, you know, the, the supreme leader and his regime. And they've not been able to work well with others in that respect on just a basic level. So uh, in that and, and also people in Iran, I think, don't like them. That's the sense yeah. I've gotten over the years. So I don't you know, that's my view on that. So you talked about how there's very little appetite for a war earlier. I'm just trying to think ahead here. If if the regime somehow starts uh, their enrichment activities again and, you know, things start going the other way, is, th is there a likelihood at all for any kind of military confrontation? Because John Bolton has talked about it in the past. He has been, been a proponent of, um, you know, preemptively attacking Iran and North Korea and so on. So is, is that a likelihood? Well, I mean, I, the, the the bigger likelihood, although, if they, I mean, you, you then the, the more what I'm more concerned about is what if the um, the the terrorist attack that was thwarted, I guess people were arrested in Europe. What if they pulled something like that off, and you had dozens of casualties in a European city, and it was linked back to Iran or someone who works with the Iranians? Uh, I think that would that would potentially be a real problem, and you know that. They have, you know, there's a reason the State Department says the regime is the largest state sponsor of terrorism in the world. So if they decide to um, respond to the economic warfare from the United States through an act of terrorism, that would potentially 
be one of those things. And if they make good on their promises to close the Straits of Hormuz, that wouldn't be another thing that um, would prompt a kind of military response. But, what is I that, don't, is, but I just want to say what yeah. I don't think is going to happen, and this is really important, is I don't think you're going to see an Iraq-style invasion of Iran, which is there's all kinds of things that you could see maybe a bombing campaign of their known nuclear sites. And then potentially, you know, the Iranians would probably respond in some ways, and maybe through terrorism, maybe through something else. But what I don't think you're going to see is that kind of plan that we saw in 2003, where the U.S. government and allies invaded Iraq, set up a new government, and did all these things. That is not on the table. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm not privy to uh, every contingency plan of the Pentagon or anything like that, but I would just point out, beside that, that I completely entirely oppose. Uh, again, as I said, I think it is up for the Iranian people to sort of be the authors of their next revolution. Is that off the table because the U.S. realizes what a fiasco Iraq and Afghanistan were? Yeah, I mean, that's big, a big part of it. I think the American people don't want those kinds of military wars anymore where you're invading and you're taking responsibility for a foreign country like that. And then um, I think it's also because Iran is a much bigger country. And, I mean, it's just not – I just don't think that's – the idea that a, an invasion is going to be coming anytime is just – it's something that I think is a red herring. It's sort of used to evade, like, the much – the poignant question that I think everybody has to face is, all right, well, there seems to be – a pretty widespread movement and a mood in Iran right now, which isn't going away, where they're saying, you know, we are sick of this regime that keeps lying to us and stealing from us and imprisoning us and getting us uh, entangled in f wars that we don't appreciate, we don't support, like in Syria. Um, that that is eventually, hopefully, going to reach a breaking point. That's got nothing to do with, you know, should the United States invade Iran. And, you know, I think everybody would say, no, the United States should not invade Iran next. So that's my point is I think that it's a tactic. And I think the regime is, and their apologists use this to try to not deal with this more poignant question about, you know, the illegitimacy of their government. I see. But um, but, but you believe that the administration itself thinks that way? I, I mean, I, 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 with the caveat, let's not, I don't profess to, not inside Trump's brain. Um, but if anything, Trump's shown his instincts are to cut deals. He said this from the very beginning when he when he got out of the nuclear deal. He said these sanctions are coming; they're going to be really bad. But one day we should be able to meet. He is he's a deal maker. President. He likes to be in the action negotiating. He likes the pageantry of summits and things like that. That is, and and he you know whatever you want to say about you know he supported the Iraq War at first and then he was against it. He campaigned in 2016 against the Iraq War. He, 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 he made it pretty clear. He called Jeb Bush a dummy because his brother got us in the You know what I'm saying? So this is a – my point here is that everything that Trump is telling us about himself, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I acknowledge there's a lot of bad and a lot of ugly there, but is that he's not somebody who would be inclined to want to support sending more U.S. troops into Iran, especially since he's trying to get U.S forces out of syria right now you know yeah. so i just i just keep all that in mind and you know that, that this is how he, how trump looks he sees the world fair enough uh so you mentioned the um iranian the possibility of the iranians conducting some kind of terrorist attack in some european city is that really part of their mo in any way the iranian regime? yeah doing some kind of crazy terrorist well, attack that's, and... okay. that's not me that's the european authorities arrested these people like around the time of the nato summit i mean listen this, that, or they, it was a, you know, and yet, and by the way, in answer to your question, yes, 
this is the MO of uh, the Quds Force and the IRGC. This is what they do. They they have been sponsoring and supporting terrorism, hostage shaking, etc. for some time. Uh, it's one of the reasons why uh, so many of their neighbors uh, are so threatened by them. Right, but those are in conflict zones, right? They don't go to Paris and try to blow up the. Well, Eiffel you should Tower look. I would I would urge you to look up. Uh, the um, 1994 attack on the AMIA Cultural Center in Buenos Aires. There's, there, you know, there's a, a famous Argentine prosecutor that actually named a number of senior Iranian officials involved with that. There's also the Kobar Towers case in the 1990s. Um, anyway, you can go on. You can say that uh, are there probably elements in Iranian state that don't like terrorism very much? Maybe, but uh, we know that there are many who do, and they are, you know, uh, still have a lot of power. So I think it's a very real threat. I mean, also, I mean, the, the other is the big one is the Cafe Milano um, and the attempted, you know, the, the, the plot to, to have a car bomb there to kill the Saudi ambassador to, the, to Washington, which was uh, prosecuted, uh, I guess, under Eric Holder in the first term of Obama in 2011. I see. All right, so uh, I know you don't just focus on Iran. So uh, yeah. <laughs> before I let you go, I wanted to get your opinion on on a couple other things sure. happening. Um, what are your thoughts on on Trump and the whole uh, Russia thing? Oh well, that's an <laughs> open ended question. I mean, I, I'm like everybody else. I'm awaiting yeah. Mueller's Mueller's findings. Um, uh, it's too soon to say that you. I mean, I, we know about this Trump Tower meeting, and. Based on so far the evidence, because there was a lot of interviews that were done by people in that meeting from the Senate Judiciary Committee, that it looks like certainly the meeting was set up on the pretense of getting dirt on Hillary Clinton, but delivered um, a plea to um, change this sanctions on Russian officials, which, by the way, are those kinds of sanctions. They're known as the Magnitsky Act sanctions. They're the kind of things I think would be great sanctions against Iranian leaders um, because they really highlight you know, the abuses of the individuals who are benefiting most and, are, and have the power in Russia, and they, they're not as opposed to punishing, like, regular Russian people. Right. All right, that's pretty much all I had on my list. Thank you. You've been very generous with your time. No, no, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. So where can people follow your work? Uh, I, well, I'm in, uh, if you go to well, if you Google Eli Lake, you'll see it. one of the first things that come up is my author page at Bloomberg Opinion. And then on Twitter, it's very easy. It's just E L I L A K E, uh, and that's uh, that's and I post all my stuff on Twitter. So I'm I'm pretty much that's my big social media medium. All right, fantastic. Thank all you right. very much for having me. Absolutely. Have a great okay. rest of your weekend. Take care. You too. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Right. Thanks for listening. I hope you found that episode to be interesting and productive. Again, if you did, I would really appreciate it if you shared it on social media or told your friends and family about it. Uh, stay tuned for a lot more great guests coming up, and thanks and take care.